I'd like to hear your responses to the movie um, before we, what it meant to you, what stood out, um, how it fit in with other works. I mean, what um, we've not seen a play together in some ways. It just wasn't a. I love the produ production. I mean, there there are several productions. I'd, I'll say why in a minute. I really want to hear your responses. I wish the the film had been clearer and the sound had been better, but there's nothing to do about that. But how? What was your response? How did you guys? I thought it was nice to see the emotion in conjunction with the words. On the part of the players, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That some scenes were humorous. Yeah. You know, that they were joking with each other that I didn't get when I was reading it. Particularly with Autolycus, you mean in Bohemia? Or in the beginning, the end, or? Well, actually, uh, when Perdita was talking to Felicity. Yes. That scene. Yeah. And she was kind of joking right. with him. Or right. Whatever the word yeah. is. Yeah. 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 And there was one other scene that I thought. What was it? I don't know. I can't yeah. think quick enough what it was. But there was one yeah. other scene where it was humorous, and I didn't get that. We're not angels, you know. When we read a book, the words are in our heads. They're just thoughts. Shakespeare wrote these to be performed. And when they're performed, we get out of the angelic world and we're into an incarnated world and everything's in the body. Gestures, inflections, stage arrangements and relations, you know, all that suddenly takes on a body. So it has a really different meaning from the meaning I think we give it when we just read it in the privacy of When we read it in our mind and it doesn't get onto a stage in bodies, but what else? Any? It was a great... Um, story of forgiveness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Her embrace. Especially Hermione. Hermione. <laughs> to forgive him the way she did. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, look what he did to her and yes. then she just went up and hugged him and forgave him yeah. everything. Yeah. It takes my breath. I can't. I break up. I can't watch that movie without <laughs> Well, you, you, I can't. I can't watch it. The other thing, I mean, you can't say enough about Hermione, she's closeted herself for 16 years. Um, Lost her son. What he did. Um, and her daughter. Lost their And her daughter. Yeah. Um, All because I am. All because the, Now, hold on. <laughs> it, it ended on a note of forgiveness. Um, <laughs> I, all I, I think he suffered a lot, too, after, yeah. after yes. he realized yes. Yes. what he had done. Yes, for sure. Wait, I want to. I don't. I'll give we, you that. We can't. We can't. I don't want to do anything to diminish the scope of the forgiveness because it's as close to anything Christ-like as I've ever experienced in literature. What he did cost them her life in some respect. She was, for all practical purposes, dead. It cost him the life of his son. It cost him the life of the regime because it took away an heir. Paulina his lost. His good friend. Yeah. Camilo, his servant. And, and Polixenes. So it's a decimated. I mean, it, it, it's desolate. It's, it's, it's a winter's tale. It's a story about death. The first half, death hangs over that play in an um, oppressive way. I mean, the, 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 the great thing about it is if he had been left to himself, it seems to me, he would have faced nothing but despair. Pauline, we'll talk about this in a minute. Pauline is there, though. 
but he lost that. Paulina lost her, I mean, in addition to what Hermione does in the way of forgiveness, for me, in some ways, the more impressive figure is Paulina. She lost her husband, she lost her queen, she lost the son, they were close to her. Her husband dies, he won't come back. Hermione did. Um, and she's the one who stays close to Leontes for that entire 16 years. Imagine a woman, I'm really serious about this, imagine a woman um, responding to a man who kill, who's responsible for the death of her husband. Staying as close as she did to him, counseling him the way she did. I mean, in some ways, in my mind, what was asked of her in some ways goes way beyond what was asked of her mind. She has to deal with this man daily, knowing that um, he was the cause of her husband's death and everything else. So, The reason I'm saying that is because it, it's, I just think it's absolutely crucial that we understand the scope of this, because what's at issue in this play is faith. I, I want to come to that in a minute. I don't want to take away the, your responses, but... So let me wait on that, but it come. But I, we cannot minimize the the depth of the faith um, in question there with both of those women, and particularly Paulina, because she's and she's having to fight off all these lords who are saying, "Mary, Mary, are you kidding? We're going to lose the regime. You need an heir. Get married." And she's saying, "So she's an extraordinary woman. Both of them are." Um, but what else? What else? Well, I just thought you know Father Flynn's sort of comment the other night of just going home and making making boys. Boys? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You want to flesh that out, Bob? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was so it was followed well on the on the heels of his comment on, on you know Saturday oh, night. There's no air, so go home and make, make one. Make one. Make one. Right. When you're reading it, it it's, it's hard to imagine Leontes coming undone the way he did with, with so little evidence so yeah. and so quickly. Yeah. Uh, but when you, when you watch it, it's, it's, it's like madness you know, creeping in and just literally taking over yeah. a man's mind. Yeah. And that really came out well in the movie, yeah. more so probably because I struggle with Shakespearean English when I read it. <laughs> and so what I miss sometimes is the subtlety. Yeah. And you see that, you, I saw that very clearly. Yeah, yeah, so good, yeah, so true, so true. A couple of things that struck me interesting is that Shakespeare is always easier to see than it is to read, in my opinion, because they're plays. I mean, if you want to understand it, read it out loud. It helps. Um, don't just sit and read it. Um, but also, there are elements of all of his histories, all of his comedies, and all of his tragedies in this play. And it's really interesting because a typical comedy has a tone for Shakespeare, and a tragedy does too, and so do the histories. But this interwove all three yeah. rather interestingly in my yeah, opinion yeah. because there were some things that could have been expounded upon uh, when the oracle came back and said you're a tyrant okay I mean no if somebody is going mad and has gone this far with it just to drop it at that point there's more to that right I mean so there's things like that that I thought because it, if it would have been a tragedy that would have had to have been expounded upon greatly 
but because it had the elements of all three, it could drop back into more of a history after that, and then more of a comedic sense. And yeah. so I thought, just from a Shakespearean standpoint, that was very interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, sorry, Mark. Sorry, I'm going to talk about a couple. Just I'm going to just briefly mention them. They're not going to mean much to you, but I've got to, to try to put this in perspective. Anybody else? Anybody else? Carl, yeah. I enjoyed seeing Hermione, the queen, and her engagement with the king of Moravia. Bohemia. What? Bohemia. Bohemia. Polixenes? Yes. Yes. Because seeing her from afar, and pretending you couldn't hear anything that she said, I could understand how the king would, you know, he would kind of get his hackles up a little bit. And once that, once that got rolling, it just ate him up. Yeah. And he, yeah. he envisioned everything that she probably was saying in his mind, but she wasn't. And she was, she was being a little coquettish. I don't know if that's the word for her. Um, <clears throat> But I know where you're going. I mean, it was there. When you look at it, because his were, you know, when you're, when you're, um, I mean, I, I made that comment yesterday. There are two things that I hope for in this play. I, by the way, what, did, what, what, what about the setting? Sorry, I want to, what about the setting? Any response to that? Pretty bland. But that made the characters stick out more. And particularly when the, when the, cam when the character zoomed in and put his face right up against almost mm -hmm. the camera lens. Mm -hmm. It just it, it just emphasized the emotion or, or the behaviors and the personalities of the characters. Yeah, I I love the setting. Um, I've watched Shakespeare play. I I almost don't watch productions all through, across my life because I Jane Austen and Shakespeare. I I it I just to me it's so hard to do justice to the greatness of what they do. If you watch a, if you read a Jane Austen novel and then watch a film of it, you you lose a whole narrative voice and her intelligence. If you read her narratives, there's a brilliant light that comes through her language. You, there's the fineness of her mind, how articulate she is, and the understatement and the powers of perception. That whole narrative voice gets lost. And so I, I typically don't watch them. But the ones that I have watched, Shakespeare, I, they always leave me regretting what they've done. They will try to put them in modern clothes or modern dress, or try to do justice to to a Renaissance dress. I, I really, especially enjoyed the scenery because they took it out of that. They 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 nullified that. They quieted that. So you could watch that, and because there wasn't the distractions of time, anything topical, you could focus on the characters. But so it it had a for me it had a timeless quality. What was going on could have been true in any setting, any age. And one of the things I particularly liked about it was that, um, I don't know what you call it, that entranceway. It's sort of geometric, but you know, the entranceway. Because it was there in every scene. It was there in the pastoral scene. It was there in the courtroom scene. And it was there in the beginning. So what they did, I think, metaphorically, I don't know. I don't know what the directors you know, mine was in this, but it seems to me metaphorically 
that, that function to, to signify an opening, a pathway of coming and going. And if you put that together with what's happening with the characters, and what I'm going to argue is a providential action that the, that the gods are, the divine very much has a hand in what's going on, that this idea of a pathway, you know, of coming and going, um, fits in with the play. So I love the way that had a central place in the whole play. Um, I don't know if that was conscious, but I, I just well, thought it was really well done. I think it was from the aspect, the, the, the optics of basically it gave you the impression the way it was built was, and the closure made the impression that you were walking in from a considerable distance into the, into the scene and the, the, the sloping, those sloping yeah. was a, uh, like I say, a, 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 a almost a, what would you call it? One an optical illusion, basically that yeah. was yeah. that was being created yeah. to uh, yeah. to do that. Yeah. I, I thought that was rather an interesting, yeah. you know, the, the the physics and the optics yeah. of the whole yeah. thing. Just yeah. you know, yeah. but that was good. Explain to me the fascination with the oracle in this, being at Renaissance when the church ran everything. You mean Apollo? That, yeah. Wait on that, Mark, because I'm going to come to the gods, okay? Okay. Um, it just seems out of place. Yeah, because I'm going to talk about a providential, and let me just say this to just, but, but I'm going to pick this up and try to um, give it some importance because it seems to me that the play asks for it. But Shakespeare writing for a, a, a basically Christian audience, um, but it's also an audience in which schismatic divisions are, you know, the Protestant-Catholic wars are already underway. Henry has already declared himself um, the head of the church, and anybody who, who doesn't sign on with him is going to get persecuted or killed. Priests can't conduct masses, and Catholics are disenfranchised. So it's a horrible political situation. It's so, it's so contrary. America came into existence in response to what happened. So Shakespeare's facing a danger, and um, it seems to me he can, he can do a lot and say a lot by using the classical gods at a time when being explicit would have cost him his life. He would have been put in the tower. I mean, if you read, if you read his plays, Winter's Tale is such a good example. Lear, all of the great plays, you can't read them without being aware of how much they, um, they are a critique of his England. And you know that if he had said any of that explicit, he would have been condemned and executed. Um, let me turn to this stuff, a couple of things, because we, we, I really want to get through some stuff to try to open this up. Sorry? So he, he was picking on a religion that had no, no base, therefore no one to come, come back at him. Picking on, what do you mean? Pick? Using, using um, the oracle. The oracle as opposed to the head of some known religion which has a... Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing to say about this, true, in the most positive sense, is um, it's really clear when you read Shakespeare that he could not have done anything of what he did without Homer, Virgil, Plato, Aristotle. He, he, his mind was, his whole political sense of the world was formed by that classical education. So it would be natural for him to carry that forward into his plays. We live in a, in a scientific world in which it's 
believe that gods don't exist anymore or God doesn't exist. That wasn't true for Shakespeare. That whole classical education was carried forward. So people were comfortable talking about Delphi, <coughs> Athena. Um, and remember, one of the, who was it? Um, the shepherd, when Polixenes threatens him with his life, when, when he uncovers himself and says, tell your father, and Florizel refuses, and then he threatens them all. If you remember the shepherd's words, he said, um, I didn't want to die this way. I'm, I'm going to die, how did he put it, where a priest can't dig because he's going to, he will be buried outside of hallowed ground. There, Hamlet had constant allusions to a Catholic world. His father was unconfessed. You know, he said to a few, go to a nunnery. So there are constantly um, allusions to a Catholic world. But um, he's also just very adept at speaking to an audience which is losing its Christian faith in lots of ways and which is divided in its faith. Um, it's a complicated question. Let, let me go to some of this. Um, I, I'm going to do something here before we start just um, and ask you to hold on to it and think about it before we meet next week to, to go over the ending. You know from the play and from your reading that um, how important art is to the play. When we go to the cha it's a chapel, it's a chapel. Um, we go to the chapel scene, Hermione is presented as a statue. She's a piece of art. In the scene before, when the lords were talking about what happened, they said this Italian artist sculpted this thing and made it almost lifelike. And there are other things I'm going to talk about in a minute that have to do with art, but art is very much on his mind. Um, so um, I, want to, I want to speak to a couple of things and ask you to hold on to them and think about them before we meet next week because I'd like to talk specifically about that ending and what Shakespeare's doing with it and why he handles it the way he does. So two things. Um, one is, um, remember, faith, hope, and charity, everything that we do with our language tends to denigrate it, downplay it. We do that with, virtue is not a word that's taken very seriously today. Faith, hope, and charity are words um, not taken very seriously. We very often talk about hoping for a bike for Christmas, <coughs> or hoping to get a car, or, you know. Faith, hope, and charity are supernatural virtues. We've secularized them. I mean, we've, we've brought them down and, and um, adjusted them to our own order. But I, so I want to go through this because it seems, I've been talking about this, that we don't know how to read tragedy well. I've been hitting you over the head the last few weeks or Othello and Hamlet. We, we bring expectations and in some ways reveal more about our own age and how it's formed our tastes than what's going on with these plays because we've lost a tragic sense of things. Faith, hope, and charity are supernatural virtues. They're not things under our control. They're gifts. We can't demand them. We can't force God to give them. We go down on our knees and ask. But we can't, we don't have the power over them that we do when we pick up a hammer to nail a board you know, or, to, or to start a job. We, we are so talented as creatures that we, there's a lot that we can do without the help of God. There are lots of non-believing people in the world who accomplish great things. 
Um, so there's, there's, we do an amazing amount with the talents that we have. He, I mean, we're so gifted as, as you know, creatures. But faith, hope, and charity are not in our control. They're supernatural gifts. They're distinct from the natural gifts. Fortitude, prudence, justice, temperance. Those are the four natural virtues. Those are the things we can, we can, by our own effort, get better at, right? We can become more prudent. We can become braver. We can become more temperate. We have to work at those things, but we can become virtuous on our own. Faith, hope, and charity are supernatural gifts. They're beyond us. Faith has no meaning until we have faith in something when there's no reason for holding that faith because it's beyond reason. Hope has no meaning unless we hope when there's no reason for hoping. Love is not a supernatural virtue until there's no reason for loving anymore. If that if if I'm if I'm speaking if I'm misspeaking here, why did Christ come down? He came down not because we deserved it. He offered his life freely when we didn't. So supernatural love, the, the love of another, when there's no reason for loving that person anymore? Why? Because I mean Father harps on this in his homilies. I'm gonna love you because you do all these good things for me. We've been asked to love each other when we have no reason for loving each other. It goes to this whole thing of forgiveness. We only forgive somebody when we think um, um, they deserve it. I mean, what a hardship. What a hard thing to do. I know it in my own life. I'm assuming everybody else here knows it too. But I just want to underscore that because what happens at the end is directly a result of the faith, and particularly in the women, not the men. It'll, it'll come to it in a minute. They're waiting for the oracle to be fulfilled. Everything they do is an act of faith when they have no reason for doing it. The men are going, get married. And, and wait, are, are there not sufficient reasons for getting married? If you don't get married, the regime dies. We don't have an heir. The, the state's going to go to hell. What can be larger? The whole regime is going to go. Practical reason says, get married. Yes. It's Paulina that says, not until I say so. And remember, for 16 years, the king is, is giving his obedience as a king to the servant, a woman. So it's really important, if we're going to understand the, the, the magnitude of what goes on at the ending, we cannot minimize those supernatural virtues. Faith doesn't mean anything until we have no reason for holding it anymore. We're supposed to have faith when we have every reason for jumping ship. We're supposed to hope when we have no reason for hoping. We live in a world in which those have been so minimized so that when we're tested, we lose hope. When somebody dies, I mean, if we can't have hope then, when do we have it, for God's sake? Same thing with love, right? I mean, we're not asked to love when everything's convenient for us, or we would run, we would, what's the something and run? Tuck and run, Cut. what's the? Cool? Huh? Cut. Cut and run, thanks. Cut and run, right? Cut and run. So, um, this is so important to the play because remember what, what Shakespeare's doing, like Dante, is he is constantly struggling to bring justice and a Christian worldview together. Because in, unless we bring those two things together, there will be no regeneration of a world. It will die out. 
I'm going to come to that in a second because it's one of the things I that I just tried to speak to quickly last night. So, so what's at the heart of this play is this: are these supernatural virtues that are being lost? Take those away, there's no play. I hope that's clear. Okay? And if we, I mean, I made the same argument with Othello and Hamlet. We do anything to minimize the heroism of what those men do, even though they seem to go against our notions of things, then we're minimizing the extraordinary actions that end those plays, what Shakespeare's showing us. It's important for us to learn to see things more deeply. And there's not a question in my mind that Shakespeare was a Catholic. But. So one is that. The second is art. Um, and let me just say this, and I want to I throw this out. To, um, it's to pick up something I said last night, but, I, but I, I'd, like to, I'd like to just throw it out. Because if we don't see this, we have the meaning of the ending. You know you've got that timeline of the prophecy. Here's, here's Judaism. Sorry, Carl, I'm sorry, you had a... Uh, or sorry, Fred, Fred, sorry. You had a question. Oh, it was just when you were talking about faith and hope, I, I see them as supernatural, not so much charity, but maybe you were defining charity in a different sense. No, the three supernatural virtues are faith, hope, and charity. I mean, I can choose to be charitable. Supernatural. Well, you, you can choose to have hope. You can mean none of those things go on without our the consent of our wills. But the understanding of the church, and I think for most of us, I and mean, we all we all try to be charitable. Does our charity extend um, as far as Christ when he went to a cross? I mean does our love go so far that it enters into the realm of supernatural gifts? By the way, I don't want to put this out of reach for us for a minute, too, because um, Paul, St. Paul says, you know, faith, hope, and charity, those are the greatest, but the greatest of those is love. Or isn't charity translated as love? That's what, yeah. 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 So it's not charity like we think of giving to the charity. Oh, that's, yeah. that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. See, I want to make a, I, yeah, I'm getting, I want to make a distinction here. Faith, hope, and love. Huh? It's, it's more like faith, faith hope, and love, love for me. But yeah. I Leave it. Faith, hope, and love is good. I understand you're using those interchangeable. Yeah. Um, serious, C.S. Lewis has written a book on, um, I can't remember the name, The Four Loves. The Four Loves. C.S. Lewis has written a book called, and he, identifies four levels of love. And it's been too long. Eros, affection, friendship, I can't remember, and then caritas. I mean, we have natural loves. It's, it's in our nature to love. But I think most serious theologians and most people who've thought seriously about this would say that um, something of our earthly loves <clears throat> always have an element of self-interest in them, something self-serving. Lust, eros, erotic love, even friendship in some ways has that. I mean, there's something of our own interest in friendship with affection for another. Charity, caritas, as Christ revealed it, is a love that's divine in nature 
that goes past what we're capable of in the way we show love in any natural way. And so when I use supernatural love, I'm using it in that sense that we've been called to follow Christ. He's asking us to love each other as he did. He wouldn't have done that unless we already did it. I mean, he's, he's been living it for his disciples. That's the love he's calling us to show. And that's the love I'm talking about here when I talk about faith, hope, and charity as supernatural virtues. They are divine in character. They're beyond our nature. They're, they're offered to us as gifts. We ask for them. We hope to grow in them. You know, we pray for them. Those are the sacraments are offered to help us grow in them. Those are, those are different things. They help us to do things we cannot do on our own by our natural abilities. That's the way I'm using it here. Judaism, um, God, God called out his people and there was already a universal aspect to his call at the very beginning because he, you know, as great as the nations you will go out. I can't remember the quotes right now because my mind's not there, but I want to, I want to go back to that point where Christ, this is that, that timeline that I gave you at the very beginning, if you remember. Um, when Christ comes, we can say that in one sense, that line of continuity from God calling out a people got expanded and deepened through Christ. He was the Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for, even, even if lots of the Jewish people don't recognize him. So according to us, that's, this is the continuation of this line, so that we can say that Judaism breaks off of it by denying Christ, and out of Judaism, Islam breaks off. Both of these two peoples are under the law. And according to Paul, the law is death. I mean, we all die under it. The only source of new life is here. Um, one of the effects, one of the qualities of the law is death. We hold people under judgment. We won't survive it. Christ answers that with his resurrection. He's going to a cross. I, I don't think I'm saying anything you all don't know, right? So I can go ahead. Are we all together here? Okay. Now why am I showing this? Um, last night I gave two examples in which Shakespeare explicitly deals with this notion of regeneration. Um, that um, one, of, one of the principal concerns raised by Plato in the ancient world and that gets picked up with Christianity is um, How does, um, how does a regime continue its life when the natural end of anything in nature is death? Um, if we look at tragedy in the ancient world, you know that um, tragedy, comedy deals with, um, 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 let me see. tragedy, comedy has to do with um, a movement from bad fortune to good. Tragedy has to do with the movement from good fortune to bad. According to the pagan world, all tragedy ends in death. You know this now. There's an there's a opening problem of complication, a crisis, a denouement, and a resolution. And every good tragedy has a, a recognition and a peripatia. Um, a, a turn. 
the hero, the tragic hero, see something in his life turns. It can be Sock, it can be um, Oedipus, it can be Lear, it can be um, Othello, it can be any of the tragic, any of Shakespeare's tragic heroes. But we've seen that every tragedy ends in death. So there's, there's a complicated problem here. The tragic action always answers an injustice. Whether it's Oedipus thinking he has all the answers and he learns that he killed his father and slept with his mother, or it's um, uh, Macbeth trafficking with the witches, or um, Othello killing his wife, or let's say Leontes virtually killing his wife. Um, every tragedy answers some injustice so that it moves towards a resolution. So every tragedy brings us to a point that promises a new regime, a new beginning. This shouldn't be surprising because remember the great theme of all the ancient epics was a, a refounding. A battle was being fought um, in order to bring in a new life, something new. That was the great theme of all the epics. Shakespeare knows that as an artist too. Every one of his plays is, a, is, a, is modeled on that, this pattern. So every, every pagan tragedy ended in death, but it always implied a regenerative process. That when injustice was answered, the conditions were created to bring in something new and better. Hamlet, um, Fortinbras comes in to take over. So all the evils are answered. Same, remember Othello, Iago's out of the way. Everybody's learned. Um, the cost is always great. The ends of tragedies are devastation everywhere. This is the pagan view. And what we, what we sense is that underneath this tragic pattern is this heavy sense of despair. By the way, the word despair means despair, era, hope, without hope, without hope because the pagan world had no answer for death. After death was a shadowy underworld. It was, if you remember the Iliad Odyssey, when people go into the underworld, they're shadows, they're shades, they're gibbering idiots. There's no meaning in the next life. What happens when Christ comes into the world? He comes into the world, goes to a cross, dies, and rises. So suddenly this whole pagan way of looking at tragedy um, takes on a new aspect. For the first time, we see what was implied in ancient tragedy, this regenerative process, is completed. Christ rises, he goes back to the Father, he calls all people to join him. Now why am I saying this? Um, if you look at Anthony and Cleopatra, Coriolanus, just to give a couple of examples. Each of those tragedies ends with calamitous things. People die, Coriolanus dies. Anthony and Cleopatra both die. Their deaths are heroic, by the way. Um, Anthony kills himself, but we, we see that it's in love and we're glad. Cleopatra kills herself and, and her handmaidens kill themselves. I know Catholics get horrified with this, but it's it's noble and I think we're meant to see that it's good. Um, Cle Cleopatra um, saves herself from being used as a harlot by Caesar because remember at the end of those wars Caesar captures, he defeats Anthony and captures Cleopatra. 
So he's defeated by what she does. But in both of those plays, the, the characters um, reach a point where they love, but that's all. In Hamlet and Othello, something different happens. You read Hamlet, and you remember Hamlet wants to kill Claudius, right? He, and more, he wants to damn him. So through the, in, almost the entirety of that play, he has one motive in mind. It's to kill Claudius and send him to hell. And I don't know how many of you were here or not, but you know that my reading of that is, I think it's the, what, the reading, what the play presents. Hamlet's in danger of damning himself because it's not in his power to decide the outcome of a person's soul. That's in God's hand. If we start going around damning people, <laughs> we're in danger of damning ourselves. It's not for us to... Second, second commandment. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. We can't speak for God. So through that whole play, he's at risk of damning himself because he wants to... He wants to take vengeance in a way that will damn. This is a Christian world. Pagans wouldn't have done that. That would have never happened in a pagan world. That's a Christian world. In a, in a pagan world, they would have just taken vengeance. It killed him. Remember, Claudius is a prayer, and he says, this is a good way to avenge my dad. I kill him, he goes to heaven. And we learn a moment later that he was in prayers, but he couldn't get the prayers off. And Candlewood killed him there. The whole play would have been over. Um, <laughs> Hamlet reaches a point of recognition because remember at the end of the play he had the channel crossing and he's learned to trust in a god. So what happens in that end scene when he kills Claudius is he's acting instinctively, not premeditatively. The queen says it was the king. He's not going in there to kill. He's going in there for a fencing match. But a, a number of things happen to make it clear that treachery is afoot. Laertes is dying. He says it's the king. The queen says it's the king. He kills him. He's a changed man. So the Hamlet that comes out of that play is not the Hamlet before. The same thing's true of Othello. Othello's a really noble man. If we take that nobility away from him, we're missing the tragedy of it. What Iago does with that man, I mean, what evil can do. I mean, it's evil forces. At the very end of the play, Othello recognizes what had happened. He's not the same man that he was before. So when he takes his life, we can't see that this is the same man. I mean, he has to answer. Nobody's going to... If he goes back to Venice, they're going to let him off. They're going to save so. this man. Yeah, but... Um, what happens is, is really interesting to watch because the closer that Shakespeare gets to the end of his life, the greater his faith deepens. And here's what happens. For the first time in all of history, in any playwright, a dramatist, he fulfills the regenerative process. It's implied in Hamlet, it's implied in Othello, it's not in Anthony and Cleopatra or Coriolanus, it is in Hamlet and Othello, and it's fulfilled here, because what happens here is in the middle of the play, the tragic action completes itself, the regime is wiped out, I mean we're virtually in the same place we were with um, Othello, right, a man's killed his wife and lost his son, and. He's committed this horrible evil. It's an evil thing he did. It has to be seen. That's an evil thing. That's the state of the regime. But he goes on. And we call this, in literature, I mean, a romance. It's a sad word, but we distinguish it from the comedies. Because if you read the comedies, they're light and gay. What he does in the romances approaches something sacramental. The difference 
is the resurrection. Because what Christ did to shatter that pagan world was come back from the dead and show that there is something in the afterlife. Now think about the implications of that for art. Because up until the time of Shakespeare, and by the way, Dante, Dante calls the divine comedy the comedian, the divine, it's a comedy. There's nothing, well, actually, there's a lot funny to hell, but it's not, it's not a tragic condition. Um, if he'd left it there, somebody might make a tragedy of it, but it's not. It's, it's, it's stupid and ironic, but it's not tragic. The Christian view does not allow of a tragedy because we know Christ came to save everybody and he rose from the dead again. Now, the question that I'm putting out here is how important is art? Now, just think about this. For the Jews, the second commandment said, no graven images. The Jewish people have almost no artistic tradition to speak of. None. None. Islamic, the same. If you look at their artwork, it's, uh, it's, it's maze-like. It turns in on itself. The only viable tradition of art is in the West and began with the classics, going back to Homer, and is carried through richly. Now, why is this important for this today, for, for this reason? Remember I said in, in, um, in uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, the lovers go into the forest, the father wants Hermia to marry Demetrius. Hermia wants to marry Lysander. And Theseus, who's the founder of Western civilization, says, you have to obey your father, the old law. The old law, the father's authority. By the way, how old is it? It's in Winterstale. There, there, there are no fathers in this play, Winterstale, and no, without problems. I mean, everywhere we find a father, there's a problem. Um, the father says, you have to marry Demetrius, and Helena doesn't want to. And Theseus says, you have to follow your father's will. That's the law. They flee the city. They go into the forest. Oberon uses his love potion. It's all a metaphor for poetry, what he does. I can't go into the play because it's, it's not a time here. But because of what he does, the lovers, Hel Helena, Helena and Lysander and Hermia and Demetrius, realign themselves. They come out of the forest back into the city to carry on in a civic life with their loves ordered. Now, why is that important? The mechanics who are putting on a play are putting on the play Pyramus and Thisbe. Pyramus and Thisbe were two lovers who died, and in the play that, that they put on in this play, they died by Ninus's tomb. Ninus was the, was the founder of Babylon. Now, why does this matter? Because it's, it's only by means of poetry, going back to Plato's challenge, it's only by means of a poetry that can bring in the eternal into this passing world to help reveal it in a way to help us order our loves and our minds so that we can see better and love better. Take that away and there's no regeneration. How do we, rege how do we regenerate ourselves? What you've got here in art are two cultures, the Jewish and the Islamic culture and, and by, I'm going to say Eastern Orthodox, because in the 10th century, Eastern Orthodox broke off from the West. I mean, we, that schism in the 11, 1054, 11th century. If you look at Eastern art, it's all, it's all platonic, it's all geometric, it's all medieval. 
That tradition did not carry forward. You're talking Near East, not Far East. I'm talking about Greece and Russia and um, Turkey and all the Eastern Orthodox religions, all the Eastern Orthodox religions. Their art remains in the past. Why does that matter? It's only in the West that Christ's commission to the paraclete to come and carry on his work gets carried forward in art. So that through art, we have a means of carrying on what happens in this action here. Where, the, the, it, remember, Plato's challenge was only those who see the eternal things. If the spirit enters time and works with people in the political order and can help them change, then that people has a way of renewing itself. It doesn't get stuck in the past and arrested there. It's only in the West that we have a vital tradition in which art and poetry and religion can go hand in hand forward. Something creative is always at work, regenerating. So in this play, what Shakespeare is offering us is an answer to that perennial problem. How does a regime perpetuate itself? It can stay sick. The Chinese people are in a cyclical cosmology. If it's static, it remains the same. The West has always been dynamic because it's the only tradition in which art and philosophy and religion move. If you look at Islam, Islam is very uncomfortable with philosophy. And I can go back to that. If you go back to the um, quarrels in the Middle Ages, you'll see the, one of the great philosophers of that period um, tried to get around the problem that Islam posed by saying there are two truths. There's a religious truth and a philosophic truth. Well, who in Islam is going to buy that? Once you allow that into your system, religion is going to get undermined. So there's this great tension in the West, this extraordinary tension involving religion, philosophy, and art. And at the center of it is the artist, who is the one, according to Plato's challenge, who can, who can create these stories that help us to see ourselves more clearly, to help us see more clearly what's at issue, and to help us feel, to help order our emotions. Dante did that, Shakespeare's doing What I'm suggesting today is that Winter's Tale is principally about that. So I'd, I'd like to hold off this discussion, but I would like you to be thinking about art and why this ends with such a focus on that statue. And let me put it another way, just to underscore this. Why, why all this attention to Attilicus? You know, I had a feeling people were falling asleep when, you know, in the second half of the play, because all this stupid stuff's going on. It, absolutely not. Attilicus is a parody I'll, I'll get into it in a minute when I go to the regime. He's a parody of everything that's going on in Sicily. I'll come to that. But, but one of the things he does is sell ballads. You know that, right? Yeah. What ba and what, what ballads did the people gobble up? All these extraordinary stories about improbabilities. A, a woman who was 500 feet in the air and another woman who wanted to eat carbuncles, or I can't remember the word, who had a fortune because her husband was a usurer. And the people were gobbling. They couldn't have enough of those stories. Every one of them dealt with improbable. Now set those improbable stories next to Winter's Tale as an improbable story. Because all these amazing things happen in Winter's Tale. And ask which one would be admitted into Plato's city. 
what we learn from Autolycus is that as human beings, we, we hunger for miracles. We hunger for the improbable. The mundane life beats us down and at some point it bores us. There is something, there is something in us as humans that longs for something more. So what do the masses of people do in, in Bohemia? They gobble up these, what would they call them today, these Harlequin novels or, you know, or, or, or soap opera televisions or these, you know, that, that go on and on and on and keep people stuck there. Set those against Winter's Tale and what do we see? Shakespeare's asking us to pay attention to art and the effect that it has on us. Whether it's really helping us to see ourselves and something beyond this world entering this world or whether we're stuck in a cave you know, doing what we always do. So this whole question of art is really crucial to this play. Okay? So next week when we get together um, I'd like to look at that, that statue scene and everything that happens and I don't want to do it tonight because I'd like to look at some other things but let me stop there. Okay? Any, any brief questions on that? It's not a time to dwell on it because next week I want to take it up but I, I really would like you to think about that because if you look at art today, what's, what's coming out of Hollywood and televisions, and I mean, 90% of stuff that's on film today are horror stories. The half of the rest of it is escape literature. I mean, it really is escape. It's like the stuff that, you know, the peasants are buying from Autolycus. It's just to, it's to help relieve us of our burdens. It's escape. Is it doing what Shakespeare does or Homer? Or Dante, or Moby Dick. Anyway, so there's a serious question about art here, and it and it and it it's really important to to be aware of what's happening in the West, because it's only in the West that this great tension finds its expression in great works of art, and and um, how important those works are for for helping our culture to move forward. If you, wait, 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 if you look at historically over the, the history of the West, you see the West reaching points where it dies out again and again and again. I mean, there are all these crises. You can name them. We could list them tonight. It's not, you could list them. And, and amazingly, we have been able to come through them, constantly changing. Can you say the same for Islam, China, um, Judaism? I mean, the Judaism has produced some amazing writers in the last century, but they tend to be secular. Kafka, you know, some amazing work that he does, and some other people. But anyway, just give that some thought, um, because part of what we've been doing is is dealing with this question of the prophetic nature of literature. That there's something in literature. It, it's as if it's serving us on this side of prophecy to help us to work with the Spirit to renew ourselves going forward, to carry our sins, putting them away as we go, so that there's a constant action of regeneration, renewal, conversion, stuff. Bob, you question. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, I have a view of art, but the question is, uh, that I'm, I, I'm curious about is, what is your aspect of, of the, in, in art, what is included in that particular? I mean, what do you include in in the aspect of all art? of it? Well, television, but, movies, drama, poetry—is that what you're asking? Music? Well, yeah, I mean, painting, it, but it's sculpture. But it's, but it's but it's that. I mean, is it is it structures or is it 
geometrics or I mean does it I mean all of those things to me have I mean I look at natural crystals and I mean I mean it's it, to me it's I mean that they're extremely beautiful I mean they're they're uh, yeah. I mean, it's art yes it's really yes. You know, yes. But arts are a that's natural art yeah <laughs> wait ask keep going I'm just but I'm I'm just uh, it's the, the elements of you know of, of I mean if you go to I mean when you go to Islamic countries I mean um, their buildings are decorated in a you know, tremendous what they call, but yes. they're all geometric patterns. Yes. I mean, yes. typically they're yes. and they're based on some clearly on mathematical uh, yes. bases. I yes. mean, which you know yes. is is that is, would you include that in art? Yeah, I mean, as a as a result. Sure. Okay, because I, of, because even though you say even though there are underlying uh, mathematical uh, principles mm -hmm. that cause them to create these mm -hmm. these swirling aspects or right. these are these right. are you know unique yeah. arches and the like they, they may not have a lot of wait let me let me respond you could um i would include all of it i i, okay. I would hope everybody would understand that from what i've been saying all along but i hope you i hope there's no confusion on the part of anybody here that i would make a distinction between really good art and other kinds of art well, and, and, that was gonna and be what's what's an issue for me <laughs> when we talk about art because if you go to the secular world about this and here I mean who's gonna who's gonna see anything credible in this at all mm -hmm. secular world's gonna say are you kidding mm -hmm. I mean I look I'm, I mean what I'm serious about this I we yeah, watch movies right. all the time 90% of the movies coming out of Hollywood are horror stories oh yeah they're yeah. supported by our worldview today mm -hmm. I don't I mean that's art but yeah. I don't think it's the kind of art that's going to it's going to answer the problems that I'm trying to present here yeah, for us. Right. Okay. And I mean, so then that was going to be a follow-up. Was this basically you already addressed this to some degree, a certain degree? Is the aspect of good and bad art? I mean, as far as what what's acceptable and 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 is it is it the measure of acceptability? Is it based on the society that we're in that it, that that's, that dictates that hey that it's this is art? I mean, Absolutely. And of to a you know. Look at all the Renaissance art. What's it about? Oh no, I understand. It's about the church. Yeah. Ninety-nine percent of it's about the church. Yeah. In some form or fashion. Look at art today. Almost none of it's about the church or God or anything. But interesting is that, as bad as the artistic heritage of Islamism is, they're the reason we have a lot of the Greek tragedies. But but if you look but if you look at there's a reason say that again. As bad as the tradition of art in Islam is, they're the reason we have a lot of the ancient Greek texts and a lot of the ancient Greek tragedies. Because a lot of them were destroyed by the church. Oh, were, Islam. Were, yeah. We wouldn't have Aristotle. Exactly. We, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have, okay. probably wouldn't have Plato. <laughs> okay. No, we had Plato. Because he's, I mean, he, he survived. It's when the empire moved to Byzant Byzantium that we yeah. lost half of it, and, right. and it was only because of the Islamic world that it was preserved. So. Okay. Last, Wait, I hope last, I hope you're not speech. hearing a black one, white one last Pete, one last heaven hell here or condemnation. No, 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 no. I'm trying to make distinctions that involve gradations. Uh, and, and finally, something that's fundamental and radical. Yeah. yeah. But but the last the last follow up is that I mean there is again primitive art, which there's you know, what primitive art, yeah. I mean you you I mean that Indians had or I mean some of yes. some of it is represents deities, some of it is just some attempt to capture, a, yes. a, a, to, to tell a story. I yes. Mean, the, yes. That you know. Yes. Um, yes. Hieroglyphics. I mean, yes. Yeah. Wait. By the way, I, I really I'm, I'm going to call this to a close because I want to yeah. get into this because this yeah. is a, okay. a vast. But but to, I hope this 
at least is the beginning of an answer. Uh -huh. We have talked about the logos. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. nothing in creation, there's nothing in creation that doesn't have a beauty, whether it's a crystal. If you go back to, um, it's amazing, if you go back to Indian art, the primitive Indian art, look at the, the woven baskets, yeah. you look at that and think, how in the world, we say that's primitive? Yeah. Right. This, the, the patterns are so sophisticated. Precisely. With an amazing beauty. There, and that's not with any sense of Christ or, you know, oh, that's right. but, but what you, I mean, one of the conclusions you can draw from that is there is this logos, mm -hmm. that there is this beauty in everything in nature, and there's this instinct of love in us as humans for things of beauty. And, and I mean, at some point the question is, what do we do with it? I mean, I look at that primitive art and think, what a glory. I mean, it's extraordinary. But we're dealing with... You know, another issue here, yeah, no, is, um, and I'm trying to make, a, <laughs> but I, I just, to, to make us aware of something that I think is important for us to be aware of. Okay. That was good to know what your definition of art is. That was good. What? What he asked and what oh. you said. We have a better idea of what you mean now. Here's my art. definition of art, mm -hmm. um, but, but I, I wouldn't want to separate yeah, from sure, this logos sure. that there. Okay. Art has to do with the creation of a form. This is my definition. And this, by the way, this is Thomas, so I'm plagiarizing. Um, <laughs> that, that beauty consists of three qualities. Integrity, it must be one thing and not another, it has to have a wholeness. Consonance, consantia, consonatia, um, harmony. Continuance, yeah. And um, claritas, light. Everything in, in creation that has a form will have those three properties. You can't find it without it. It's, 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 it has an integrity. It's this and not something else. It has a harmony. The, the parts of it um, relate in a way that shows the whole. And it gives off a light, an intelligibility. It's luminous. Claritas. It, if you read Jane Austen's lines, you can't read her, I can't read her lines without thinking of them in terms of light. The light of her mind comes through her comments all the time. If you look at that Indian basket or a crystal, I don't know how you can look at this and not see a radiance, a, something luminous. A form gives off something to us that we experience as beauty. So, and I think they're everywhere in nature. And I think it's instinctive for us to make things. Sadly, we live, I mean, the, the greater question for what we ought to be asking is, in, in an industrial or um, media-oriented world where mass production takes over, what happens to the instinct for art in all of us as humans? What does living in that kind of a culture do to us as humans? The, the Indians would have gone out and made baskets. How often do we make baskets? How often do people weave or make things anymore? Kids do it when they're young and then... I don't want to go there. Just, but we're here looking at Shakespeare. What? <laughs> what? Say it. Candy's making a basket as we speak. Oh, are you? <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> There's some hope. <laughs> I want to do this just quickly and then I'm. Um, because it's I'm under an interdiction here.
not just my wife anymore. It's, it's a gang for me. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's. You've obtained a monitor. <laughs> you've obtained a monitor in your life. <laughs> can, can we turn to? Can we understand. I think what I'd like to do, I'm just going to go over this very, very quickly and make some brief remarks, and, and then I'd like to read some passages just to get us into the text. We've already talked about the two regimes, um, Sicilia and, and Bohemia. It's interesting to me that if you look at those, those two regimes, how much they line up, how much they reveal about the play and the differences between men and women. They're not just two regimes, they, 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 they help underscore these fundamental differences. I hope everybody knows here, Shakespeare is not a black and white thinker. He, that is not the way he looks at the world. When he's giving us masculine and feminine, he's not, he's not saying that this is all one and all the other. Because he knows clearly that there are women who use their minds the way Leontes does. And he knows that there are men who have nurturing qualities you know, that are the distinct, one of the distinctive marks of women. But, but as an artist, he's, I think, trying to show us something here. The two regimes are Sicily and Bohemia. Um, there are a number of things that show the qualities of Sicily. Remember in the opening scene in that exchange between the two lords, um, I don't want. I don't want to spend any time. But Archidamanus um, says, "We will give you drugs, so you won't be aware of our insufficiencies. Because if you leave here and go to Bohemia, you're going to be faced with the simplicity. This is a rustic pastoral world. You know that. It's in nature. It's much closer to nature. Sicily, in in some ways, is an image of a Renaissance city, and it's Shakespeare's image of." of the sort of thing that I'm talking about. It's, it's, it reflects his awareness of a Renaissance world coming to its end. That we are on the verge of a new world and he knows it. That Renaissance world is passing. A scientific worldview is coming into existence and it's affecting people's minds. Leontes is a, is a figure showing that. So Sicily is modern. It's ripe. It's like a fruit about to fall. We know from that opening exchange that all the lords are waiting on Mamilius. That's those are the opening words. That that they're it's like they're holding off death to see this young boy grow up. What's going to happen? He's going to die, and that's when the regime falls. So all the promise for the future is dashed by what happens. Um, it's sophisticated. Um, there's the kind of playfulness between the sexes. I. I um, coyness isn't quite the way I'd describe um, Hermione. There's something so dignified in her. She makes it clear again and again that what she does with Polixenes is she would never do anything to embarrass her husband. She does only what he asks her to do. When Polixenes says he won't stay, she comes forward and then she presses him as a woman and she gets him to do what Leontes couldn't. So she's only doing that. When they go off in the corner, I, I have a feeling they're probably you know, if you're, I mean, I, if Jane and I were somewhere, and I might, because I've seen her here a number of times, and I kid her, because 
there's almost not an activity where she's not present. I might come up and, you know, and um, if Suzanne were given a jealousy, she might look at that and think, what's he doing? You know, it doesn't take much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that. Two things I want to say to preface this. This is a Renaissance play. I hope everybody sees that what's going on here is as, is as much a reflection of what goes on under, did go on under the Obama administration, may go under, that, that when people get into political office and power's at stake, people do strange things. What we see Leontes do is not only accuse his wife of adultery, but every time one of his lords disagrees, he accuses him of being a traitor. When Camilo leaves, he says, look, that's proof of his, that he's a traitor. So nothing happens that he doesn't use his mind to turn to justify himself. Now, how much of that goes on politically in any regime? So this doesn't have to be a Renaissance world. That goes on whenever, whenever power is associated with rule, when people get, get too egotistic about the way they use power. Um, so Cecilia's a mature regime. It's ripe. It's ready to fall. The question that faces it in the middle of the play it will, can something happen to bring this regime back to life? Because in its state, it's dead. The major figures have died. Leontes would live in despair if it weren't for Paulina. I mean, he would be crushed by the weight of what he's done. Bohemia is um, um, a pastoral regime. It's bucolic. People are close to the earth. The major activity is a shearing festival. Um, so we've got two regimes. Um, it'll, it'll be because of what happens to Perdita and her return from that Bohemian world that the Sicilian world will recover itself. So it's, it's, it's clear that that Bohemian world is necessary for the continuity, for the recovery of Sicilian. Now on the surface, the two regimes look very, very different. One sophisticated, well-educated, artistic; the other's rustic. But look at the look at the things they have in common. Um, one of Autolycus's functions is to is to remind us that there is no pastoral regime. I mean, world. There's no suburbia. Would be his comment to us in America. When we attempt to flee the city to get into a better life, what we find is the same kind of problems in suburbia. And if they weren't there at the beginning. They will be there in five years. Drugs, adultery, whatever goes on. Shakespeare's aware of that. What he's showing us is, in, with, with everything that Autolycus does, is that the fall is everywhere. Everything Autolycus does is, in some ways, a, a reverse mirror or, a, or an extreme opposite mirror of Leontes. He uses his mind and his cunning to build people. He tricks them everywhere. He gets them to do things. He doesn't have the power, but everything he does is that. But it's at a much more innocent level, right? He doesn't have the power. He, he was a servant of Florizel, um, but whatever he did to get thrown out, he's... So the fall is everywhere. Um, that's one of the things it shows. The lovers here are mature. They're older. Polixenes and Hermione are older. So is um, Antigonus and Paulina. They're older. The lovers here are young. Everything that Florizel says as a young man is excessive. He's overly romantic. Um, Paulina is constantly correcting him, saying, you do overstate things. She's trying to always quiet him as a, 
Is it king? Huh? Or sorry, Perdita. Yeah, sorry. What did I say? Perdita, yeah. So the lovers are young. Um, let me leave it at that. Here. The masculine and feminine, you've already seen it. That, that one scene that is um, so troubling to hear when, when he accuses, when he accuses, um, when he speaks with Camilo and accuses um, Hermione of adultery, remember, and he says, and Camilo says, it's nothing, it's, it's not real. And he has that speech, I read it last night, it's um, <coughs> hard for me to read it because you remember which, you were all there last night, yeah? At Act 1, Scene 2, he's whispering, nothing, he goes on, is all this nothing, why then the world and all that's in, it's nothing. The covering sky is nothing, Bohemia is nothing. My Remember what St. Thomas said truth was, truth is the conformity of the mind with things. The modern world has reversed that. The modern world has made truth an idea in our heads. We project that idea out and we make it truth. Thomas said there will be no truth unless our minds conform with things. That's the truth of them. Everything Leontes does is to twist things, to make them something they're not, until he finally takes everything away. He turns it into nothing. And it seems in some ways to me he's a paradigm of modern man. He takes his mind to make of the world whatever he wants, and he annihilates being. He makes it nothing. So in him, Shakespeare is showing us just how diseased the mind can become. We do with our minds. Um, I wish we had time, we don't, but remember, when Camilo leaves, um, he accuses him. He, he takes that as a sign of his treachery, when, as a matter of fact, he was fleeing. And in that scene when Paulina brings the babe in, if you'll turn to that, it's Act 2, Scene 3. He, 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 the Lord's, <laughs> this is, she's wonderful. Turn to Act 2, 3. Um, she comes in with a babe, and, and Leontes says, get this witch out of here. Force her hence, this is about line 50 or 60. Let him that makes but trifle of his eyes first hand me. That's clear, right? I'm going to scratch your eyes up if you get any closer. On my own accord I'll off, but first I'll do my errand. The good queen, for she is good, hath brought you forth a daughter. Here it is. She lays it down. Mankind witch, out with her. Down below, he does everything he can to humiliate her husband by making it sound as if he's, what do you call it, a henpecked husband, somebody that, whose wife rules him. Um, Traitors, will they not push her out? Give the, give the bastard thou daughter, he goes on forever. Unvenerable be thy hand, she says. Um, the babe's yours, Leontes. He dreads his wife. That's a clear sign that he's a coward because he doesn't listen to his wife. Um, so what I you did, then twere past all doubt, you'd call your children yours. If you just listen to his wife, that's the last thing Leontes is going to do. A nest of traitors. I am none. Go down a few lines. A callet of boundless tongue, who late hath beat her husband. <laughs> He's not going to let Antigonus, this is all Antigonus' fault because his, his wife beats him up all the time. Um, anyway, at, at one point in this exchange, he says to Antigonus, you put her up to this. What does his mind not do? There's nothing that happens that he doesn't twist to, to fit his own mind. 
so that he says to and, and, and the husband, you, you set this all up, you're a traitor, it's a nest of traitors. Um, he says about line 150, you're tr liars all. Um, and then you know what happens. Um, he threatens, Paulina leaves, he threatens the babe with the life and he tells and, um, Antigonus to take the babe away and drop it, cast it off somewhere where it will be left to die. Um, Act three, scene one, the, this is the two men um, at the Delphi Oracle. I shall report for most had caught me the celestial habits, methinks I so should term them, and the reverence of the grave wears. Oh, the sacrifice, how ceremonious, solemn, and unearthly it was in the... I, I think Shakespeare's reason for showing this scene is to, is to leave us with this, so that we don't do what Leontes does, so that we don't minimize this. He makes it clear that this is a holy place. Just by the way, so that we don't have any questions about the authenticity of the, of the oracle. But of all that, the burst and ear-deafening voice of the oracle, kin to Jove's thunder, so surprised my sense that I was nothing. So that we know that there's something sacred, the numinous, it's dreadful, there's something holy here. Um, go to Act 3, Scene 2. She makes her appearance in court. It's a painful moment. But before we look, I want to put these two passages together. Go back to Act 2, Scene 1, line 115. This is when Leontes first confronts Hermione and he, and he accuses her of adultery. Line 105, she says, um, and this is where I think Jane's comment about her, I mean, uh, um, what's her name? Um, Merchant of Venice. Um, Portia? Portia. Extraordinary woman. I think we'd all agree. Extraordinary woman. Put Portia next to um, Hermione and Paulina. The difference is the difference between a wisdom that comes to somebody through suffering. The depth, the depth of character. There's almost no medium. Portia's an extraordinary woman. Next to these two women, I mean, she almost looks shallow. Hermione, there's some ill planet reigns. I must be patient till the heavens look with aspect more favorable. Good, my lords, I'm not prone to weeping, as our sex commonly are. The wand of which vain drew, perchance, shall dry your pities. But I have that honorable grief lodged here, which burns worse than tears drown. Beseech you all, my lords, with thoughts so qualified as your charities shall best instruct you, measure me. And so the kings will be performed. In the production that we saw last year, there was a, a note of spite in the way the women played this. I think it's absolutely wrong. There's nothing of spite in this woman. This is as close to a Christ love. Christ before Pilate when he was quiet, silent. This is a wife of a husband who has loved that husband dearly and who almost cares more for what's going to happen to him at that moment than what's happening to her. That's why I say this thing about faith, hope, love. In Winter's Tale, we're, we're in a, 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 a world that could not have been presented. No Eastern, no Islam could have ever written a play like this. None. Beseech you all, my lords, with thoughts so qualified as your charity shall best instruct you, measure me, and so the king's will be performed. Shall I be... What a whiner. He, he knows that she's having an effect on people. His immediate response, is anybody going to listen to me? He wants to do everything he can to take her words out. Cut. 
And look at her. Who is it that goes with me? Beseech your highness, my woman may be with me, for you see my plight requires. She puts her hand, if you remember, on her stomach, because she's nine months pregnant. Exactly the time that Leont or Polixenes had been there. Do not weep, good fools, there is no cause. When you shall know your mistress has deserved prison, then abound in tears as I come out. This action I know go on is for my better grace. Jeez, how many of us would go into suffering like this, seeing that it's a means of grace and occasion? I know go on for my better grace. Adieu, my Lord, I never wish to see you sorry. Now I trust I shall. My women come, you have leave. Extraordinary women. Act 3, scene 2, she's in court now. She's got these threats from Leontes, and she says, line 91, Sir, spare me your threats. The bug which you would fright me with, I seek. The crown and comfort of my life, your favor, I do give lost. This was her great love, and she feels that she's lost it. What does she have to live for? I do give lost, for I do feel it gone, but know not how it went. My second joy and first fruits of my body, that's Mamie's, from his presence I am barred like one infectious. My third comfort, starred and most unlikely, is from my breast, the innocent milk in it, most innocent mouth, um, hailed out to murder. Myself on every post proclaimed a strumpet, with immodest hatred the childbed privily denied, which longs to women of all fashion. Lastly, hurried here to this place in the open air, before I have got strength of limit, now, my liege, tell me what blessings I have here alive that I should fear to die. God. Therefore proceed, but yet hear this, mistake me not. No life I prize it not as a straw, but for mine honor which I would free. If I shall be condemned upon surmises, I'll prove sleeping else, but what your jealousies awake, I tell you, tis rigor and not law. Your honor's all. I do refer me to the judge, Apollo be my judge, or the oracle. There's nothing wasted here. I mean, she goes right to the point. Um, all her loves are laid bare. She doesn't go on and on. There's, she, there's nothing of a victim in her. She's facing death. She knows it. I mean, what an extraordinary creature. Um, Leontes is pushing for the verdict again, and, and so he asks for the oracle, and then you know what happened. The officer reads the oracle. Hermione is chased. This is about line 130. Polixenes blameless. Camilo, a true subject. Leontes, a jealous tyrant, his innocent babe truly begotten, and the king shall live without an heir if that which is lost be not found. And you know what happens. Um, he denies it. He says there's no truth. And the, the very next instant, the messenger comes and says, um, the son is gone. And we know from what transpires, the son died because his heart was crushed because of the mother. Now line these up, masculine and feminine, for a second. He dies because his mother is in prison. Hermione gets the news, and you remember she faints. The news of her son dying. I, I imagine her knees were given out through this whole, I mean, she just showed tremendous strength in standing up in all of this. But to hear the news that her son has died undoes her, and she, she collapses. And then it's then that um, um, Leonti says, Apollo's angry. Now remember, when I read that opening line, when he says affection does stab the center, remember, he knows what's happening. He says, I'm, I'm cohabiting with things that are not real. He, he's aware of it, but can't stop himself. 
to me, it's one of the most powerful scenes in all of literature because he's, it's not somebody else doing anything to him. It comes from inside himself. It's the fall taking over with, with a bright mind. He knows it and can't stop it. The jealousy sober comes in. And then he begins to twist everything to fit his mind. Because immediately he says, he says, Camilo was an honorable man. He fled. So it's not like he's in the dark about it. The, the light of reason was always there. It, it's like it got poisoned from within, something weak in us as humans, and played it out. Um, turn over to... Um, you know what happens next when Paulina comes out. She says, all these things you did um, were bad, but nothing compared to this. And then she says, your queen is dead. And when he hears that, he almost collapses. Um, this is the beginning, this, and going back to the tragic paradigm, this is that moment of recognition that turns the play. That he sees is wrong, and the next 16 years will be a penance. He will live in contrition. He recognizes the wrong that he's done, and he will spend the next 16 years listening to Pauline, because she will say, um, promise me you won't marry again until, because she knows that, that um, Hermione's alive. Okay, now the remarkable thing here that just can't be lost sight of. Pa Leontes is, is a ruler, and if you watch all the men in the play, they all have this sense of practical, the, the practical intellect. Yeah, here's, the, here's all the men, the, the, the nothing. You know, the masculine mind. Very practical, wanting to get things done. All the lords keep saying Mary, you know, again and again. Over here, the feminine, in an interesting contrast, they're presented as nurturing. It's, it doesn't quite line up with practical reason. The practical reason is very efficient. It's not that women don't get anything done, because they're very practical in taking care of children. But there's a, there's a love of a human being always at stake in what a woman does in this play. Um, the, the interesting thing about all these women is their power for waiting. The men want to impose their will on things. The men say, get married. Um, or Leontes accuses his wife. He wants to get a trial done. He wants to close it, you know, all the men. The women wait in a remarkable way. There's something nurturing, abiding. Both of the women are, um, what's the word? Their alliance is not the, the friendship that binds them together. They're both committed to waiting out the oracle. Because remember, the oracle said, that which is lost, you'll be without an heir until that which is lost is found. So they are good readers. I mean, remember that, because how much reading has been a part... Is Leontes a good reader? I mean, misreads everything. They're good readers. Nobody hears this. They, we don't even know they're doing it. But what we discover later is they heard that in the oracle, this, that which is lost. He will be without an heir until that which... So on that thin reading, I mean, think how fine a reading it to, to have seen that. They believe that, that something can happen. And on the, it's on the basis of that hope that they wait it out. So for the next 16 years, they do nothing except to keep themselves loving, hoping 
um, for the oracle to work out. Now think about, think about the importance of that. It's only when Perdita returns that Paulina brings everybody to the chapel. They could not do anything, the women, until the gods answered it. So everything they do waits on the gods. I don't know if I said that clearly enough. Yeah? Everything they do is in hope, belief, faith, that what, what the gods implied in that oracle will one day work out. So it's only when Perdita returns, that which is lost is found, it's only when she's found again that they can bring them out. So it's only then that they come out. So interesting dynamic there because the king during that time cannot give in to the lords who are all saying, state's going to go to hell, You're going to, you, know, you have no heir, you need to marry right now, and he won't. He's learning, he's learning to serve a higher power than reason. And the two women are holding out for the oracle. So what Shakespeare is exploring is this relationship between reason on one hand and faith on the other. And it seems to me that what he's doing here is what St. Thomas does in his work. He's reconciling them. He's showing that what happens at the end is the result of bringing both of these things together that makes possible this new, this new regime. Um, the other thing, remember in that, that exchange between, uh, here turn to it, in, in the, the exchange between Perdita and Polixenes. I want to just look at that again. Is that the part about the flowers? Yeah. I'm very interested in that. What's, yeah. what's the meaning behind that in the carnation? By the way, um, every Shakespeare is a Renaissance man because the you couldn't grow up in the Renaissance without knowing astrology and biology and I mean it was our education is got it's a joke next to what their education was. Every flower would have had a meaning. Not just a name, it would have meant something. And in all of Greek mythology would have made that clear because flowers for the Greeks you know, were associated with certain gods, certain activities, certain things. So every one of these flowers has a meaning, not just a name. Remember, here, Act 4, Scene 4, just to, to quickly, we've got, I've got a, it's getting close to the reaching hour. I was going to say, what are they, the, the guillotine, it's the guillotine. <laughs> <laughs> Look. A cop. Dog show. We'll get out the hook. <laughs> Witches, all of you, get them out, get them out. Four, scene four. Florizel and Perdita are together. These are unusual weeds to part of you to give. By the way, remember. This whole thing about nature and nurturing, even though she's apparently lowborn, everything about her suggests something royal, that you cannot hide. She's the product of a royal, so Shakespeare's very aware of breeding, how important it is that I mean, something gets passed on biologically, not just spiritually in our education. So she's the, appropriately, she's the queen of the festival, and that's a sort of parody of it. You know, everything else, everything else that we know about the play. These are unusual weeds do each part of you do give life. My shepherd is but Flora appearing in April's front. This your sheep shearing is his meeting of the petty gods, as you the queen on it. Sir, my gracious lord, to chide at your extremes it not becomes me. She knows that he's the prince of a king. She doesn't want to chide him. She feels embarrassed. Well, pardon that I name them. Your high self, the gracious mark of the land, you have obscured with a swain's wearing. 
Um, over and over again, she shows her humility with him, and each time he over exaggerates something, she asks him to quiet himself, to be more moderate. Anyway, you, you know that what happens is that Polixenes and Camilo come disguised, and then this exchange takes place between Perdita and Polixenes. She starts to hand him flowers, and then she says, Sir, the year growing ancient, not yet on summer's death, nor on the birth of trembling winter, the fairest flowers of the season are carnations and street gillivers, which some call nature's bastards. Of that kind are rustic gardens barren, and I cannot, I care not to get slips of them. Wherefore, gentle maiden, do you neglect them? For I have heard it said that there is an art which in their piety shares with great creating nature. The great creating nature will, on its own, produce this great variety of species of things, including flowers. Say there be. Yet nature's made better by no mean, but nature makes that mean. So over that art, which you say adds to nature, is an art that nature makes. The only way we can learn to graft flowers is from nature itself, because it's in it. So if we learn, if we pay attention, we can learn from nature and carry on its work, even if we produce new things, like a, like a new breed of flowers. So over that art which you say adds to nature is an art that nature makes. You see, sweet maid, we marry a gentler scion to the wildest stock and make conceivable a bark of baser kind by bud of nobler race. This is an art which does mend nature, change it rather, but the art itself is nature. So it is. Then make your garden rich in gillivers and do not call them bastards. I'll not put the dibble in earth to set one slip of them no more than were I painted. Remember Mamilius' criticism, or his, his facetious playing around with the women at court was their eyebrows because they painted their faces? He's so conscious of that because Cecilia is a place of artifice. The women paint their eyebrows blue or black or whatever they do. She says she won't do anything like paint her face. Um, I would wish this youth should say to her what me. I'll not put the dibble in earth to set one slip of them no more then were I painted, I would wish this youth should say, "'Twere well, and only therefore desire to breed by me." That is, I'm, I'm no more going to do that than I'm going to put, I'm going to paint my face, dress myself up with makeup, and have this youth desire me to breed by me because I've got this makeup on. She wants nature to take its course. So she doesn't want to meddle in it. So, here in Sicily, you've got a regime in which artifice is a big part of everything that goes on. Here, people are much closer to nature, and interestingly, it's Perdita who says, I'm no more going to do this than this. She doesn't want to do it because she doesn't want to do any artifice. She wants to let nature take its course. Um, here's flowers for you, hot lavender, mint, savory. There's, they've all got meanings, but these are flowers of middle summer, and I think they're given to men of middle age, or very welcome. Camilo's so taken with her, um, and, and here's the important thing for what I'm about to say. Polixenes is taken with her. Both of them, nothing but good to say about her. And his speech even seems to suggest that he would have supported the marriage, because you can take a, a base stock and a higher stock and breed them, and it'll, it'll produce a... So it seems like an argument in favor of marriage. He, they've had nothing bad to say until the marriage question comes up and you know what happens then. Now here's one of the indications that we get that 
Underneath the differences between these two regimes, there's this same potential problem, and it's particularly, in this particularly to male rulers, fathers, and men who use their minds. I'll include Elizabeth in this, I and mean, she was the queen, so it's, it's not just peculiar to men, but it seems to me men are given to it because by nature there is a difference between us that Shakespeare keeps going out. Um, when, in the next lines, remember, when the question of marriage, when, when the, the, the shepherd father is going to bring them together, um, the Polixenes asks his son if he has a father. This is line 384. And he says yes, and he, Polixenes asks, does he know? And Flores says, says no. And he tells him he should tell him because he shouldn't do that without his father's consent. Florizel's adamant. He's not, he's not going to tell his father, even when this older man tells him it's not good. The shepherd says, let him, my son, he shall not need to grieve at knowing of thy choice. Even the shepherd says, do it. And then Florizel says, come, come, he must not mark our contract. Polixenes takes off his disguise, and then he says, thou art a scepter's heir that thus affects a sheephook. Thou old traitor, I'm sorry that by hanging thee I cannot shorten thy life a week. And thou, and he looks at pretty fresh piece of excellent witchcraft, a force must know the royal fool that um, thou copest with. Five minutes earlier, he had nothing good to say. Now that his son has insulted him by not showing him the respect that he should, he can find nothing good. So here's that, again, an illustration of the mind taking something and making it not. He has nothing good to say about the man, the father, Going to, he's, he threatens him with death. He has nothing good to say about Perdita, calls her a wench. I mean, he, um, he sees nothing but foulness and witchcraft in her. And he tells the son that if he ever sees her again, ever sighs a breath, he will disown it. He will um, <coughs> give up his, his succession. Now here's, <coughs> here's the point that I'd like to leave it because our time is up. Go to Act 4, Scene 4. When you watch the play and you watch Autolycus in the second half, we're, we're coming. Um, if you watch the play, everything in the first half is tragic. It, it's the action of a tragedy. When you watch the second half, it's almost silly. And I, I wondered if everybody got bored last night because it's almost as if you think nothing's happening. You know? But there's nothing that Shakespeare does that doesn't tell. Everything that happens with Autolycus is absolutely essential for what's going on. I just, I'll read one line. Remember, there's a couple of things he does. One is he sells books. He's a pickpocket. He, he cheats people. So there is evil in this pastoral world. <coughs> but the other thing is he's serving in amazing ways to help bring this thing about. Act 4, scene 4, line 650. Um... Camilo has just told Perdita and Florizel that he has an idea, that he believes he can take them back to Leontes because Leontes has called, sent a message to him telling him he wants to make up. So this is an occasion now for healing all these wounds. So he tells Florizel and Perdita to listen to him, obey him, because he has something that will save the succession, make his father forgive him, and reconcile with Leontes. 
Autolycus comes to this, I understand by business, I hear it, to have an open ear, a quick eye, and a nimble hand is necessary for a cut purse. A good nose is requisite also to smell out work for the other senses. I see this is the time that the unjust man doth thrive. The unjust man doth thrive. By, by the way, don't forget, Perdita, Florizel, and Camilo are all going to be lying. They're all going to tell, remember when they present themselves to Leontes, they're telling them that they're people that are not. So during this whole period, there are all these dishonesties taking place. And here in the middle of these dishonesties is this dishonest man. And he says, I see this is the time that the unjust man doth thrive. What an exchange has this been without boot? He doesn't have to do anything to carry it out. It's like, it's like he can rest on his thieving because all this thieving is going to go on that will benefit him. It's like a, it's like a grace. <laughs> Sorry to use it, but um, the, pride, the prince himself is about a piece of iniquity, stealing away from his father with his cog at his heel. If I thought it were a piece of honesty to acquaint the king with it, I would not do it. I hold it more of knavery to conceal it. He wouldn't go against himself because he's a dishonest man, so he's going to be true to himself and continue to be dishonest until they change clothes. And remember when they change clothes, then he pretends to be um, a noble, and, he's, and he says he's speaking the truth, and he is, but every motive behind the truth is a lie. And remember what happens, they exchange coats, and it's only because they exchange coats that Camilo can carry out his plan with Florizel. Now, my question to you, I want to look at this more closely because this is too fun. we're out of time. Is the outcome at the end, the reconciliation between Leontes and um, Hermione and um, the recovery of Perdita, is that the result of just human ingenuity, of humans planning things and carrying them out? Or, at 4, scene 4, line 525, when Camilo presents this plan to him, Florizel says, how Camilo, may this, may this almost a miracle, how could this happen? It's almost like a miracle. Is what happens in the outcome the result of human effort? Or is there a providential hand involved? Could this have happened without the help of God? Now remember, one of the things we've been dealing with all, all this time together is, in the Homeric world, we saw the gods. In the Christian world, we don't see them. But that doesn't mean they're not there. To find out if they're there or not, we have to look at the sequence of, of things and see if there's something else at work besides the things that reason could see. So my question here is, um, is there a providential hand? The gods showed that they were involved in the oracle. They made clear they're involved or they could not have done that. Um, Antigonus, when he lands with the babe, he has that dream of Hermione. You remember, she comes to him with these, it's a frightening dream. She tells him to go to Bohemia. He would not have gone there but for a dream. There are all these strange things happening, and lots of them at the end have to do with this rogue, this Panero, the Greek, you know, the rascal. It's only because of him that all of these things can happen. So is this just the result of human effort? Or are the gods involved? Um, that's, those are the questions that I'd like to take up. And the other thing, and just as important, 
perdita means that which is lost. The oracle says, Leontes will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. Um, my big question is, what's recovered? Is it just the girl, or is it something more that brings about this reconciliation? How are we to understand this ending? Are the gods involved? Is there something more to this notion of perdita, lost hope, that which is lost is found? So there's a number of major questions we have to ask about the other. Okay. See you guys next week. Uh, Bob, quick question. Yeah. Did they? There are no did, quick questions. Did, did, did Jared? Uh, is he? Is he going to a? Uh, I mean, did I understand you correctly? I thought that he was going over to to uh, uh, DF, I mean, Dallas diocese. I think he's going to stay in this. Church. I'm not sure of that, but I think he's close by. And he the lives ministry in Roanoke. Huh? He lives in Roanoke. But he's going to continue to come here? I don't know about that, but I don't think he's moving. Yeah. No. Oh, you're not. What's that? Is he going to a different church for a job? Well, yeah, it is a different job. It's with uh, Bishop Barron. Well, he's the new guy. But I think he's going to work in this area. He's the new guy in Dallas, well, but he's he's going to be able to still live here and work here. Yeah. Oh, right. ah. Not at our church. Yeah. Oh, not at our church. I mean, okay. he may come here as a parishioner. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I well, no, he's leaving at the I end am. of this week. Is this Bishop, oh, is this Bishop Barron in the Dallas area? I think he's uh, Washington, D.C. I think he's national. Okay. The word on fire. Look it up, Bishop Barron. I think we we had a whole series. Yeah, they had a they had something up there. Sorry. Okay.